I don't know about you guys, but in the 90s, uh, yes, I, I was a youth in the 90s. It's hard to believe being so youthful now. Uh, but one of the shows that I loved to watch was Home Improvement. Maybe you've seen this show before, Home Improvement. Uh, yes, Tim the Toolman Taylor was in Home Improvement. And, uh, and I loved that show for a few different reasons. One, I thought it was funny, but the other is because it really reminded me of home is my father uh, was kind of like Tim the Toolman Taylor in that he would try a lot of projects and not all of them went to uh, according to plan. And I have followed in his footsteps. And so him and I, uh, we, we, we started to do some house projects and right now I'm helping him out with uh, doing kind of some remodel at his house. And when I say helping him out, I mean I'm doing a majority of the work. And so, um, I, had, uh, I installed his toilets for him while he was on vacation so he could come home and be the king of his throne, you know? Uh, and uh, Sorry, that was a cheap joke. And so the last toilet was gonna be installed, and so I said, hey, why don't you help me get this one in? And so uh, we, uh, we started putting the toilet in. And here's the thing, and this will become important later on in the story. There is something unique about this restroom. It's in the back of the house, it's in the master bedroom, and um, we had forgotten that the plumber did something different to this toilet and this bathroom than the rest of them, okay? And so, uh, he gets this little like kind of shoebox, plastic shoebox kind of thing as the bucket to drain some water in there. And we're going to cut the stub out and we're going to put the val valve on there. And as we're doing that, he starts to cuss it, cut it. And I hear this hissing noise. And I'm like, that's, I said, you turn off the water, right? Yeah, yeah, turn off the water. And we kind of check it there at the sink. Yeah, turn off the water. I said, that's weird because that hissing noise. And so he starts to cut it a little bit more and water starts shooting out. And, and I go, dude, I don't know, man. Let's give it a second and see what happens. Maybe there's just some water remaining in the line or something. I'm not really sure what the deal is. And if you know my father, you know that he is not the most patient person in the world. And so he thought, nah, we don't need to wait. Let's just see what happens. I'm like, okay, bro, it's your house, whatever you want to do. And so he, he ends up cutting the rest of the thing. And I kid you not, it, the water shot out so fast, it was like a fire hydrant was opened, okay? And it hits him in the chest. And then his first reaction is to grab this little plastic thing and just like try to catch it in there. <laughs> and so he's stunned. There's just water shooting at him. It's filling up his entire bathroom. And so I, in that moment, realized, there was a secondary valve for this bathroom. That's what the plumber told us. That's right. There's two water sources for this one, and we forgot to turn off the other one. And so I run out there, and I turn it off in the garage. And, and then, so we get back into his, uh, into his bathroom, and there is probably three to four inches of water in the entire bathroom. He is soaked from head to toe. Luckily, my mother was not home at the time, or else this, is this story would have turned out very differently. And so uh, we're standing there. He's soaking, and he just looks at me and goes, well, that didn't go as planned. I'm like, no, it did not. That did not go as planned. And so we get into we're trying to clean up before mom gets home, before she finds out, and then it seeps in the carpet, and it's a whole mess, and, and uh, yeah, okay, uh, they're in counseling now. And so, um, as I think about that story, I kind of think, okay, that is a perfect picture of my life half of the time, is I have this plan of how things are supposed to go, and then there ends up being twists and turns and things unexpected, and it, oftentimes it's far more messy, messy than I thought it was going to be. And I look at it and I just go, that just didn't go according to plan. In fact, there may be entire areas, my entire life at, at some points feels like this is just not going the way that I thought it was going to go. And in fact, if you look at the world, and not even just your life, but you look at the world at large, you might think that as well. Is there anybody in control of this deal? It seems as if it's spinning out of control and either there is no God watching or he just doesn't care. Because if I were planning things out, 
this is not how things would go in the world. And this is not how things would go in my life. In fact, you might be here today and you're thinking, that's why I'm not a believer, is I look at the world and I look at certain things in my life and I say, there's no way there's anybody in charge of this, at least anybody who actually cares about what's happening down here. And so I I'm just not even sure I could believe in at least the type of God that you're talking about, it, it, maybe not a God at all. And the, one of the stories that I, um, that I love in the scriptures kind of helps answer this question. Is anybody in control? Is there a plan to this deal? Is there a plan to the world? There's a plan to the universe? Is there a plan for my life? And the, the, the story is in the Old Testament, it's the book of Esther. And Esther is one of my favorite Bible stories, and I'll tell you a couple reasons why in a moment. But let me give you a little background on, on Esther. Esther uh, happened about 500 years before Jesus, and so this was 2,500 years ago. And the, the context is the nation of Israel got themselves in trouble because they rebelled against God. And so God sent them different nations to discipline them. And so they were exiled out of the promised land. Well, at this point, they've been dominated a few different times by different nations, and this time they're under the Persian rule. And so uh, right before the Persians came and took over, uh, they allowed certain Jews to go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild. And so people were kind of trickling back into Jerusalem, but there were still some Jews left in Persia. And so you kind of have them in different, uh, different places. Well, the story that we're going to look at, it takes place in Persia. And uh, Esther, as, uh, every time I think about Esther, is not only one of my favorite stories, but it's one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. Because I told this story... Uh, the first time that I spoke here at this church on our main campus was about 10, 12 years ago. It was in the old building, and I got up there. I was a youth pastor. I was super excited. I love this story. I'm going to go. And if you don't know the story of Esther, uh, we're going to find out that Esther, she is beautiful, and that's going to be important to the story. Uh, she's also really tough, and she's a, a Jewish woman, okay? So three very important parts of the story. And as I'm describing those important parts, I say, mm, she's beautiful, kind of like, you know, if she were uh, a, a, a analogous to a toy, it'd be Barbie, and then she's also tough, so she's like G.I. Joe, except I had a slip of the tongue. And poor old Cody said, she's kind of like a G.I. Jew. <laughs> Darn it. Darn it. I, I can tell you that the rest of the sermon did not go so well after that. Um, although, you know, it's kind of it's funny. She's Jewish. She's tough. Okay, anyway, all right. I went better at the nine o'clock, I got to be honest. <laughs> Woo! You're like, is that racist? I think that's racist. I'm not sure. That, it's not. It's not. It's not. I promise. It's not racist. It says Jew, it's, it's in the Bible. Okay, anyway, all right. Uh, you're like, I'm not even sure if I can laugh at that. It's fine. It's fine. I promise you it's fine. I wouldn't have said it if it wasn't fine. Uh, just don't say it on purpose. Okay. Anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, story, Esther. So here's how the story begins. Uh, story begins by introducing us to the king, King Xerxes. And so he is one of the most powerful people in the world at the time. Now, he has tons of money, tons of power. He's also arrogant and he's pretty ruthless. And so he oversees 127 provinces, a huge kingdom. And uh, during this time, he throws a party. And it's not like just a, a weekend party. This is a party that lasts for six months. And he has all the people from his kingdom, especially the rulers, come in. He is showing them how powerful and wealthy he is, but he's also preparing them for his next conquest, which is going to be over Greece. And at the end of this six-month party, there's a, a week, seven days, in which he says, look, there's an open bar, and it's on me. Everybody who's in the city, you can drink as much as you want, drink whatever you want, that I'm going to take care of the tab. And so as you can imagine, there's quite a, a, a lot of debauchery that's happening. And at the end of the seven days... On the last day, after he showed off his kingdom, he showed off his wealth, he's going to show off his, his number one prize, his wife. 
So uh, this, uh, we just, uh, we, we now are introduced to Queen Vashti, and Queen Vashti is, um, I guess she would be what you would call the trophy wife, right? And so he wants his main trophy, he wants to present her in front of all his friends, and he's going to do it in a very embarrassing way. And, uh, and so she says, when she receives a message that she's supposed to come and she's supposed to uh, show herself off to, the, to all these people, she says, no, I'm not going to do it. That's inappropriate. Now, as soon as I read this part of the story, I could, I could really resonate with this. I tell Amy all the time, look, I'm not just your trophy husband, okay? <laughs> I'm not some piece of meat that you can show off. I don't want you bragging to your friends like that, post some pictures of me, things like, that's just not appropriate, okay? And she rolled her eyes when I said that. Um, so she says, no, not going to do it. The king is angered and embarrassed because no one tells the king no. And, and so he wants to get rid of her. He says, you know what? I'll go find a, a new wife. Problem is, he's not allowed to. By law, he has to consult with the other noblemen. There's seven noblemen. And so he gathers them together. and He says, what do we do about this queen? And they say, you know, we can't have this. She tells you no. You know what's going to happen in the rest of the kingdom? All of our wives are going to start saying no. They're going to say, did you hear what the queen said? She said no to the king. So guess what? No to you, my friend. And so they say, we got to get rid of her. We got to make an example of this queen. And so they end up kicking her out. And uh, he then begins the process of looking for a new queen. And so he sends messages all around his kingdom and says, bring me the most beautiful women. He's really going to hold like the first Miss Persia contest. He says, I want them to come. I want to bring them all in, hundreds of them. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give them beauty treatments. They're going to have this special diet. They're going to be trained in royal etiquette. And then they're going to start marching one after another in front of me. And I'm going to choose which one I like the best, and I'm going to make her my wife. Now, does this sound familiar to you at all? Let me recap really quick. So what you're saying is there's this eligible bachelor who is going to have a lot of beautiful women that are going to be marched in front, and he's going to get to know each one of them and then decide which will be his queen, and then they will become engaged and eventually married. Where have I heard this before? It's a very familiar story. So Esther was on Bachelor season one. <laughs> so here's what happens. It's her turn to go and to meet the king. She's gone through the beauty treatments, all that stuff. Here's how this interaction goes. Esther 2, chapter 2, verse 7 says this. Mordecai, now we're going to meet two of our main characters, Esther, but we're also going to meet Esther's cousin, Mordecai. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. This is like her Hebrew name, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who is also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Okay, so this is the Bible's way of saying she was super hot. She was like, she would be an Instagram influencer, if you know what I mean. Okay. <laughs> And so they introduce her, her to the king. the king. The king likes her and says, you know what? Um, I think that I'm going to make her mine. And so he makes her the queen. They get married. They throw a big party. In fact, he says that this is a national holiday because I finally found the woman of my life. Now, if the story ended here and they lived happily ever after, it probably wouldn't be a story worth telling. So this is kind of where the music kind of transitions a little bit. You know, we're at the wedding and woo! And now it goes dun, 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 because intro, Haman. Haman is the villain of the story. Haman is one of those noblemen that I talked about, except he's kind of like the, the one with the most power. He has the most influence. He's like second in command. And so he comes along, and he has a problem with Esther's cousin Mordecai. 
because he will walk by Mordecai every single day and they're supposed to bow, but Mordecai, as a faithful Jew, says, I'm not bowing to any man, I only bow to God. And this really angers Haman and Haman comes up with this plan. He says, you know what, I'm gonna get rid of Mordecai. I know that he's a Jew, in fact, I'm not only gonna get rid of him, but I'm gonna get rid of his family, I'm gonna get rid of all of his people. And so he goes to the king and he convinces the king, these people are bad news. We gotta get them out of the kingdom. I, will you give me the, um, the a decree that I can go and on this certain day, I can just wipe out, annihilate all of the Jews in your kingdom? And the king says, yeah, sure, do whatever you want. I don't really care. The thing that they didn't know though, because Esther had kept it a secret, is that she herself was Jewish. And so they... Um, he puts together this decree and he sends it out to all the different provinces and, and they start to hear that on this day all of, the, all of the Jews are gonna be killed. Well, Mordecai hears about this along with lots of other people and they begin to grieve and mourn and, and publicly go into the square and then ash in a sackcloth and ash and they start to kind of grieve for what's about to happen to them. And Esther hears about what her cousin is doing, Mordecai, and how he's grieving in the public squares and so she sends a message and says, what's going on? What's the problem here? What are you mourning for? sends a message back, well, haven't you heard? Look at the decree that the king has just sent that all of our people are going to be killed. He says, you have to do something about this, Esther. You're the queen. And she sends a message back saying, well, I just, I don't know if I can because here's the deal. The law states that unless he summons me, even though I'm his wife, unless he summons me, I will be put to death if I enter into his presence. And he hasn't called me for the last 30 days. And so what you're asking me to do is you're asking me to risk my very life and she had to be tempted in that moment to think, you know, things are pretty good for me right now. Why are you making me step out there? Like, I'm living in the palace, and yet you're gonna make me not only risk my lifestyle, but my very life. Well, what Mordecai says next is, um, I think, not only insightful, but it helps answer the question that we posed at the very beginning, which is, is there a plan? Is anybody in control of this deal? Things are spinning out of control, and it seems like it may, it, things are making no sense. Is anybody looking out? Here's what Mordecai says to uh, Esther. He says this, uh, I think we're at 414, if you'll go to that slide. Okay, I'll just read it for you. There it is, okay. Uh, it says this, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Now, listen to what he's saying here. He's saying if you have a choice, you get to decide if you're gonna help out or not, but what is at stake here is not the survival of the Jewish people. Because God is going to save us. There will be a savior. He will take care of us. He will, he, because here's what Mordecai believed. He looked back at history and God spoke to this man named Abraham. And to Abraham, he said, I'm going to rise up through your family, this entire nation, and you're gonna be known throughout the world and your people are gonna be known and they're gonna bless the entire world. And it actually happened. And then we go to David, and even God made this promise to David, said that your throne is going to be an everlasting throne, that there will always be someone from your family that sits on the throne. And then they started talking about this coming Messiah, that God's going to send someone to save not only his people, but the entire world. And so as Mordecai is thinking about the possible annihilation of the Jewish people, he is remembering the promises that God made. And he says, well, here's the thing, Esther, is you can decide if you're going to be a part of this or not. But what's at stake here is not our survival. What's at stake here is, is really your future. It, is it's not if God has a plan or if God is going to take care of us. That's already, that's already been answered. The question is, are you gonna be a part of it or not? And so he ends with this warning. Here's what he says. He says, but you and your father's family will perish. 
God's not gonna lose, and God's not gonna break his promises. But if you're not a part of what God is doing, it is you who will fail, not him. And see, this message is not just true of Israel, and it's not just true of Esther and Mordecai, but this is, this is a message that's throughout the scriptures, is that God has made a promise that he's gonna redeem his creation, that he's gonna reconcile us to himself. And we've been watching this story unfold in human history from the very beginning. It started with Abraham, and then we see Moses, and we see the Exodus, and then we see the nation of Israel rising, and then we see King David, and eventually we hear this prophecy of this coming Messiah with the arrival of Jesus. He says, I am that Messiah, and then he launches the church and says, now, this is how I'm going to begin reconciling creation to myself is through these people, these followers of mine. And so the message is not that God is absent or that he has forgotten about us or doesn't care. The message is, no, he has a plan, and that plan has been unfolding, and even in the times when it feels like it's out of control and you can't see how this is going to work out and you feel like maybe he's falling asleep at the wheel or he just doesn't exist, he says, I'm still in control. I've still got a plan. In fact, I've had a plan from the beginning, and it's been unfolding ever since then. And so not only does Mordecai say that God has a plan for his people, but he has a plan for you as an individual. And he's speaking to Esther, but of course it applies to us. He says, God has a plan for humanity, but not only that, God has a place for you in that plan, something specific that he has created you to do. You're a part of the plan. Here's what he says, and this is probably the most famous part of the story or famous line. He says, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Do you think it's a coincidence that you were put in that position? Do you really believe that you, a Jew, is in the, king, in the king's palace and that you have all of this authority and all this opportunity and all of these resources and at the same time, your people are about to be persecuted and annihilated? Do you think it's a coincidence that you are where you are? Now, this poses a very serious, I think, philosophical question. And if you're not a Christian and you're not a believer, I really want you to just think through these implications because most of the time we try to ignore it. We really have two options when we look at not just the world, but we look at our lives. Either we are an accident or we were put here on purpose. See, the, the secular worldview, the secular narrative would tell us that you and I are just the end of a blind process called evolution and we were here on accident. And there's something really appealing. If we're gonna be honest, there's something very appealing about that worldview. I'm not just talking about evolution, I'm talking about that we are just an accident that we are a happy coincidence here. There's something very appealing, and it's the same thing that appealed to Adam and Eve in the garden and has been a temptation for each one of us ever since, which is that means that I am the ultimate authority of my life. That means I get to pursue whatever my desires may be. That means that nobody can tell me what to do. That at the end of the day, I am the arbiter of truth. This view is called humanism, that we are the measure of all things. And there's something very attractive because each one of us deep down inside, we want to be in charge. Now, we may put up all these other reasons, but I really believe they're smoke screens because at the end of the day, if we look down into the, the, the depths of our heart, we realize it's really because I don't want to have to bow my knee to anybody. Now, th that's what's really tempting about believing we're an accident or believing there's a God out there, but he doesn't really care what I, have, what I do with my life. The problem is we never actually follow this to its end conclusion. Because if that is true, we are just an accident, or there is not a God out there who cares enough about us to speak into our, our life, this just means that at the end of our life, it doesn't really matter what we do. 
It may matter in the moment. It matters to you or to your family, but it doesn't actually matter like in an objective uh, global sense because you can live however you want. You can be Mother Teresa or you can be Hitler. You're gonna end up in the same place. Doesn't matter. You'll end up in nothingness in the end. And so we never think through the view, if I'm just an accident and my life is just about what I want to live, at the end of the day, the consequences are there's no justice. We all like to think that there's gonna be justice, that people who do wrong are gonna pay for that. But if you look at human history, it is a very small amount that have actually paid for the horrible things that they've done. The vast amount of humanity have, gonna have suffered through an injustice, and those people are never gonna experience justice in the end. They got away with it scot-free. This also means that there is no hope for healing, that there's no redemption in the end, that all of those pains, all those hurts, they were purposeless. And those people that we've lost, those loved ones, they're gone forever and we will never see them. There is no redemption in the end. Now, you might say, Cody, that's really deep and dark and I just don't like, well, I'm sorry, but sometimes we gotta go there because this is where that path leads. But there is another option. It doesn't have to be the secular narrative, it could be the scriptural narrative that says, you were put here on purpose for a purpose. And so everything in your life, it does have significance. And that all the things that you have in your life, those things are all pointers. Those things are all supposed to be used for something. The resources that you have, the opportunities, the relationships, all of those things are pointers. They're supposed to be used for a purpose. They're not an accident, but that God placed you in this specific time and place for you to make a difference. Now, we have to decide, are we an accident or what we put here on purpose? Well, I believe what Jesus had to say and what the scriptures attest to is that I am not an accident. I was put here on purpose for a purpose. And the purpose is for me to partner with what God's doing in the world. One of the things I love most about the book of Esther is, um, so if you know me, I, I struggle. I'm not the most spiritual person in the world, okay? Like it's gonna be shocking, I'm a pastor. Not the most spiritual person in the world. And the book of Esther is a great book for people who are skeptics and doubters like me. Because if you read through the book of Esther, and I encourage you to do it if you're a skeptic or a doubter, is there is no mention of God or faith in there. Not one. It's the only book of the Bible that does not have God or faith in it. And it's not because they didn't believe in God or they didn't have faith. They very much did. But the author went to great lengths to make sure that he never mentioned anything miraculous or supernatural or God or faith in there. And these are very faithful Jews. They believed in God, they believed in the scriptures, but they wanted to make sure that there was nothing miraculous, that they pointed out, they made it explicit that God didn't do anything supernatural in this story. Not that God wasn't at work, we're gonna see that he was, but it's very, what I would say, mundane. It's really what you and I experience most of the time. Because I don't know about you, but I have never had anything super crazy miraculous happen to me where you just go, wow. The burning bush just spoke to me. That was crazy. Now, the rest of the Bible is about these crazy things, these plagues, God delivers his people, not in Esther. See, what's in Esther is a bunch of coincidences that happened to save the Jewish people. And I can relate to that because I've had a lot of coincidences in my life and you probably have too. And you go, wow, what is the probability that all of those things lined up? Like in the story, it starts off with the king. King Xerxes, he gets drunk, he makes this inappropriate request to his queen, and she says no. What if she said yes? Story's over. There is no story. Esther has never been heard of before. Okay, uh, what about if Esther was a seven? <laughs> right? She's a ten, but what if she was a seven? He goes, eh, whatever. Story's over. 
There is no Esther. There's another part of the story that I didn't tell, um, and it, it's a story where Mordecai overhears a plot that someone's going to assassinate the king. He tells Esther, Esther tells the king, foils the plot. He gets the credit. It's recorded in the history books that Mordecai saved the life of the king. Well, one night the king is sleeping. He can't sleep. He wakes up and he's like, I just can't get back to sleep. And so he begins reading through the record books and he realizes, oh man, that guy Mordecai, he, he saved my life and I forgot to honor him. And so the next morning, that's the first thing on his agenda is he honors Mordecai for saving his life, which happens to be the same day that Haman was planning to kill Mordecai. And so it saved his life. And you can look at that and go, wow, that's, that's a lot of coincidences. And see, if you look at just how we are sitting here in this room today, the amount of coincidences, all the way from the Big Bang, the fine-tuning, you have the, the perfect place where the planet is, it's called the Goldilocks zone, where we're the perfect distance from our sun, and then chemistry turns into biology. Somehow humanity arises with consciousness, and we just go, how am I able to sit here and hear this today? A lot of coincidences. And so eventually we have to decide, is there just an infinite amount of improbable things that have happened in this world and in my life, or was I put here for a reason? Does God have a purpose for my life? So Mordecai reminds Esther, you were put here on purpose for a purpose. God gave you incredible amount of blessings so that you could bless people. He saved you so that you could help save other people. And so that's a stewardship, that those aren't just things that you're supposed to enjoy, although you will, but those are things that you're supposed to use in order to be a part of what he's doing. And so for me, I, I know that I'm supposed to be a pastor. I know that God has, in fact, this story is one of the reasons why I'm a pastor. It's because, like I said, I'm not super spiritual. And so my dad would say he had this calling where he just knew that God was speaking to him. I don't know if I've ever really felt that. I kind of more felt like I was a volunteer. And I was like, God, I don't know if you called me or not, but it seems like you want me in this deal, and so I'm gonna do it. You know, is that too real for you guys? Is that, no, he called me. Oh, right, no. It, it, it's because I looked around at my life and I went, either there's an incredible amount of coincidences that all seem to point in one direction, like the fact that I'm like a third generation pastor's kid and uh, I have some gifts and some resources and some opportunities and some abilities and all of those point to doing this one thing. I, I just looked at it and went, either that's a huge coincidence or this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. And there's something that God has for you to do as well. Something as you, as an individual, that he has gifted you with and given you opportunities. And I don't know what that is. That's for you to figure out. But here's what I do know. That there are things that he calls all of us to. If we are believers, there are things that he has called us to do. No matter what your talents and gifts are. And we've been talking about one of those things. And it's kind of our verse for the year. It's in Luke 14. It says this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, the master told his servant... Go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. This is one of those things that as a Christian, this is an all play. This is what we do. He has put us wherever we're at, whatever our life looks like, relationships and resources, he has put us there to do this, is to, to go out. That means to go to our friends and our families and our neighbors and whoever God puts across our path and we are supposed to go out to them and compel them to come in. Come into a relationship with Jesus. Come into this, this church family that we desperately want to see your life turned upside down because here's what we believe. Jesus changes everything and he can change your life too. And so we compel them to come in because he doesn't want anybody to be left out. These are, these are God's kids, and he doesn't want any of them to be left out in the cold because they, they're hopeless. 
and they're hurting and they need healing. And he says, if they will come into my house, this is where that I can change everything. And so Esther knows her purpose. We know our purpose. We know that a huge calling in our church and in our life is to go out and compel people to come into a relationship with Jesus. And so here's what she does. She says, you know, I know what my purpose is. I know I'm not here by accident. And so here's what I'm going to do. And this is what she does next in verse uh, 4, 16. She says, go and gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for, the, for three days, night or day. Continues on and says, I and my attendants will fast as you do. So she goes and she says, I know what my purpose is. I got to prepare for it. Because if you're going to make an impact in your world, it's probably not going to be on accident. You're going to have to be intentional and prepared in order to make a purpose. And we see this in all the biblical heroes of the faith. Every time God was about to use them or they believed God was calling them to this new, new something, a new season, a new task, a new whatever, they would fast and pray in preparation because they're heading into a spiritual battle and they needed to be ready. And so we see this in people like Moses and David and Elijah and Daniel and Paul. Even Jesus, as he's about to walk into these next three years of ministry, and he knows what's going to happen. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights because he wanted to be ready for what God was about to do in his life and in the world. We as a church, we do this all the time. In, fall, in the fall, we, um, as we are going into the Pass Forward campaign and, and we're talking about the next 30 years of ministry and we're gonna be raising money and all that, our staff did 21 days of, of fasting that led up to us even telling you about what we were gonna do because we knew that if we were gonna make an impact, if we were gonna ask God to show up and do something significant in our church, that we were gonna have to have him show up. And so when we fast, we pray, it's not like we're twisting God's arm, but we are showing him we're serious about what we're doing. We want you to show up and we want to be used by you. This isn't just a, one of those prayers that we throw up in a moment, we forget, no, we're serious. Use us in a profound and significant way. And so that's what we want to invite you to do, is uh, we want to encourage and invite our entire church to get serious with us on, on making a difference in people's lives. That we do believe that God has placed us at this time and this place, and he's put you here with us in order to make a difference in the lives of the people around us. And so we're going to fast and we're going to pray towards that means. Is we're going to ask that God would show up and that he would use us to make an impact on some people's lives. And so here's what this is going to look like. And I invite whoever wants to, this is kind of like an all play. I'll invite whoever wants to, to, to join us. Next weekend, at whatever service you attend, we're going to begin a 21-day fast. And during this 21-day fast, we're going to have different resources available. Um, if you're not enrooted and you don't have, you know, a, uh, some kind of um, devotional that you're going to be doing, we, we've made, as a staff, all of our pastors wrote devotionals for the next 21 days, and we're going to uh, uh, you know, invite you into that as well. And we also, um, we also have packets that we've made, because some of you guys go fasting 21 days. I can barely make it to lunch, okay? I get it. And we're not asking you, there, there's different types of fasts, right? There's the fast where you just have nothing but water. Unless you're like a person who has fasted many times before, I'm not recommending that. There's different types of fasts. So we did a Daniel fast where for 21 days, all we had was fruit and vegetables and some nuts because that's all that Daniel ate in the book of Daniel in order to hear from God. And so we said, okay, that's a fast. There's also partial fast where you fast maybe certain things or different times. There's also spiritual fast where you fast. Like, so one of the things I did was I also deleted YouTube off of my phone for 21 days. Oh, I had no coffee and no YouTube. I was a very sad man for 21 days, but... <laughs> We've created, um, as a staff, and we put a lot of time and resources into this, is we've created a guide for fasting that you can either pick up a hard copy in the lobby, or better yet, just go onto the website. There's a whole section of our website that is gonna be dedicated towards the 21 days of fasting. 
and we're going to invite you to be a part of it. You can sign up there to get the devotionals. You can find out more information, all that. But next weekend, at whatever service you go to, and this is important, whatever service you go to, that's when we want you to begin your fast because 21 days after that, we're going to break our fast together and we all can have food again. Okay, so that's going to be fun. Let me finish with this. And if you have any more questions, you can email us, you can ask us, but hopefully we got everything on the website and we want you to be a part of it because we really want God to make an impact here and we want him to use us and we know that we can't do it on our own. We need him to show up. And so let me finish this story really quick. Uh, the last verse of this part of the story, verse 4, 16, she says this. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law and if I perish, I perish. See, I love this response because there is a challenge put in front of her. You have the opportunity to save people's lives. What are you going to do? And she responds with an attitude and an action. Her attitude is so gangster. If I perish, I perish. What? Yeah. Okay. So she says, look, I understand that the only way that my life is going to matter is not if I just sit here and I'm comfortable not if I try to do this on my own, it's if I partner with what God is doing in the world and as I look around and I see the opportunity he's given me, this is worth dying for. Now here's the good news, you're probably not gonna have to die. It kind of feel like it at moments when you fast that you're dying, you're not. But there may be some things that you're gonna have to sacrifice. There may be some moments when you're pre pretty uncomfortable because you're going to have to maybe put your relationship on the line to have that conversation. That there's going to be some resources that you're going to have to give up, that you're going to have to explain how Jesus has changed everything in your world, and it might rub, rub somebody the wrong way, and so you're not going to perish, but it might get uncomfortable. But here's the good news. Jesus never called us to be comfortable. I have read the Bible so many times and have yet to find it in there. No, no, no. He, he called us to make an impact. He called us to change the world. And for the last 2,000 years, Christians have been doing it. Now it's our turn. Here's the second part that I love about this. She says, I will go. If you read any hero of the Bible, there is a point in their story in which God calls them to go. Go out into the world and make a difference. And Esther got that call and she says, I'll go. Yep, send me. You put me here for a reason, I'm, I'm willing. Let's go. And so that means that we're actually going to have to put some action to this deal. It's not only do we have the attitude that we will go, but when the opportunity arises, we're going to invite that person. We're going to have that conversation. We're going to put that, we're going to put that story, our story out there that Jesus has changed everything, and here's how he can change your life too. We're going to actually have to, to do it. And it's exciting. Man, it's fun. Because this is living a life that actually matters. This is a life that has an impact. This is a life that's remembered far beyond just my lifetime is when I partner with what God's doing in the world. So this is only half of Esther's story. And I'm not gonna tell you how it ends. I want you to go and find that Bible and <laughs> blow all the dust off, look in the table of contents and go, oh yeah, Esther really is in there, okay. Or download the Bible app and go and find it, because I want you to find out, because if you're not a Bible person, you think it's boring, go and read Esther. It'll make a great movie one day because it's full of twists and turns and excitement, but I want you to discover it for yourself. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this church and for um, just the challenge that you have put in front of us. It's an exciting challenge, Lord God. It is, um, it is something worth living for. Lord, it, as we look at the future of our church and we look at our future as individuals, there is nothing more important than making an eternal impact on people's lives, and, and we can't 
We can't even imagine why you would invite us into that process, but you have. In fact, you've challenged us to go out. And Lord, we respond with we will. We are ready, we are willing, and we will continue to prepare for, for you to use us in that, Lord God. And so Lord, I just pray that you would give us the strength, that you would give us the encouragement to be able to take this serious. That as we head into this fast, that there would be significant breakthroughs in our life and in the lives of the people around us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen.